0: Welcome to the new BYP Podcasts. Today I'm going to be sharing more information with you from the early Mormon understanding of the doctrine of God and why and how there was confusion. And this seems to us entirely odd because of the claim of having revelation from Jehovah, as well as from God the Father, and yet early Mormonism never did bring out a vital clarity of the kind and character of God that God was. Boyd Kirtland wrote an article in the Sunstone magazine, Jehovah as the Father, The Development of the Mormon Jehovah Doctrine. And the thing that is so remarkable about this is that we clearly see there was a development, something I was never taught in Sunday school. Today in Mormon theology, Jesus Christ is considered to be Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament patriarchs and prophets. Elohim is considered to be God the Father, the Father of Jehovah, or Jesus Christ, and of the human race. The Church promotes this point of view in all of its current lesson manuals, periodicals, and literature. While there is a natural tendency to assume that this current theology today has been the position of Mormonism from 1830 to the present, actually several divergent views have been held. In fact, Mormon perceptions about God and the Godhead have passed through several phases of development. Mormon historian Thomas Alexander has pointed out that before about 1835, the LDS doctrines on God and man were quite close to those of contemporary Protestant denominations. Joseph Smith's earliest statements and scriptural writings describe God as an absolute, infinite, self-existent spiritual being, perfect in all of his attributes, and alone in his supremacy. The Godhead was regularly defined with the Trinitarian, but the non-biblical formula, the Father, the Son, and Holy Ghost, which is one God. The Book of Mormon speaks of only one God who could manifest himself either as the Father or the Son, While Book of Mormon theology does not reflect a truly Orthodox Trinitarian view as codified in the Athanasian Creed, say, it does reflect the common Christian layman's perception that in some manner the Father and the Son were both representations of one God. Several scriptural passages given through Joseph indicate clearly that he saw no contradiction in having one God, simultaneously be the Father who sent Jesus, as well as be Jesus. For example, Ether 4.12 states plainly, He that will not believe me will not believe the Father who sent me, for behold, I am the Father. A close examination of Joseph Smith's translation of the Bible also reveals his early monotheistic beliefs. He consciously attempted to remove all references to a plurality of gods from the King James Bible. That's not something we learn in Sunday school either. He also changed several passages to identify the Father and the Son as the same God. For example, he revised Luke 10.22 to have Jesus teaching that no man knoweth that the Son is the Father, and the Father is the Son, but him to whom the Son will reveal it. These observations provide a significant insight into understanding the Book of Mormon passages which identify Jesus Christ as God himself, the Holy One of Israel, the Lord Omnipotent, the father of heaven and earth, who revealed himself to Moses and many of the ancient patriarchs. Apparently Joseph's own early theology is reflected in his translation of the Book of Mormon. That would truly make sense. Similarly, some of Joseph Smith's early revelations freely switch the role of the God of Israel from the Son to the Father. We also have evidence that indicates that by 1835, five years after the church was founded, Joseph and other Mormon leaders began to make more of a distinction between the roles and the natures of the Father and the Son. This is reflected perhaps most clearly in the lectures on faith published in the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. The fifth lecture defined the Godhead as consisting of two personages, the Father, a personage of spirit, and the Son, a personage of tabernacle. The Holy Ghost was not considered to be a personage, but rather was defined as the, quote, mind of the Father and the Son. And this was canonized in the Doctrine and Covenants until 1820, 1921, excuse me. Also, revelations Joseph received after 1833 contain less crossover in the roles and titles of the Father and the Son. In fact, It appears that after May of 1833, Joseph never again referred to Jesus as the Father in any of his writings. Well, predictably, prior to his study of Hebrew in Kirtland, Ohio, Joseph's usage of Elohim and Jehovah reflects markedly similarity to the King James Bible usage of these divine names, Elohim and Jehovah appear thousands of times in the original Hebrew Bible, however, they are generally translated as Elohim into God and Jehovah into Lord in the King James Version. The divine name Jehovah appears only six times in the King James Version, while the name Elohim does not appear at all. Accordingly, Jehovah appears in the Book of Mormon only twice, one reference being an excerpt from Isaiah himself. The name Elohim appears nowhere in the LDS standard works. After his study of Hebrew in 1835 and 1836, Joseph Smith began to use the name Elohim for the first time. He also began to use the name Jehovah more often. Jehovah appears for the first time in the Doctrine and Covenants after 1836. It appears twice in the first two chapters of the Book of Abraham, which was translated in 1835. With the interchangeability of the roles of the Father and the Son in earliest Mormon theology, it is impossible for us to identify specifically Joseph's first few Jehovah references as either the Father or the Son. However, after the identities of the Father and the Son were more carefully differentiated in Mormon theology around 1835, this is when we begin to see Joseph clearly began to use the divine name Jehovah to refer to the Father. Father. Significantly, he apparently never specifically identified Jehovah as Jesus, nor Jehovah as the Son of Elohim. Rather, the prophet followed the biblical Hebrew usage of the divine names, and he either combined them, or he used them interchangeably as epithets for God the Father. The following prayer, which he wrote in 1842, mark that year, this is way later, this demonstrates this. O thou who seest and knowest the hearts of all men, thou eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent Jehovah God, thou Elohim that sittest, as saith the psalmist enthroned in heaven, Look down upon thy servant Joseph at this time, and let faith on the name of thy son Jesus Christ to a greater degree than thy servant ever yet has enjoyed be conferred upon him. On a few occasions, Joseph referred to the father by just the title Elohim alone. Other Mormon writers during the 1830s followed this same pattern. They most often used Jehovah as the name of God the Father, and only occasionally used the name Elohim. They evidently also considered the Father to be the God who appeared in the Old Testament. For example, the following was published in the church periodical, The Times and Seasons, as the Mormon belief, and again note this year, in 1841. We believe in God the Father, who is the great Jehovah and head of all things, and that Christ is the Son of God, co-eternal with the Father. Well, during the Mavu period in church history, and this is from 1839 to 1844, five-year stretch here, at the very end of Joseph's ministry, his theology of the Godhead once again changed dramatically. He began to denounce and reject the notion of the trinity he emphasized that god the father as well as the son both had tangible bodies of flesh and bone doctrine covenants 130 section or verse 22 and he also began to teach the plurality of gods and the related concepts that men could become gods. God himself, in fact, had a father upon whom he depended for his existence and authority. The father had acted under the direction of a head god and a council of gods in the creation of the world's the plurality of creation gods is dramatically depicted in the book of Abraham, chapters 2 through 5, which Joseph translated in 1842. All of these ideas were summed up by Joseph in April 1844 in perhaps his most famous sermon, The King Follett Discourse. In connection with these ideas, the prophet began to use the title Elohim as the proper name for the head god who presided at the creation of the world. He also taught that Elohim in the creation accounts of Genesis should be understood in a plural sense as referring to the council of the gods who, under the direction of the head god, organized the heaven and the earth. Once the earth had been organized, the heads of the gods appointed one God for us. Well, from the context of Joseph's discussion of this head God, it is apparent that the prophet considered this being to be a patriarchal superior to the Father of Jesus. The gods involved in the creation were designated in Joseph's temple endowment ceremony as Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael. Joseph had previously identified Michael as Adam, the Ancient of Days, that's D&C 2711. Whether he identified either this Elohim or Jehovah to be the God the Father, as he had previously used these titles, is unclear. We have seen that he used the title Elohim in various modes, none of which included Jesus. And he also used the name Jehovah to refer to the Father. Now, given all of these possibilities, Joseph's endowment ceremony then did not seem to include Jesus among the creation gods. Now, this is a most curious situation, since many scriptural passages previously produced through the prophet, as well as the Bible, they attribute a major role in the creation to Jesus. Unfortunately, Joseph Smith was killed before he was able to elaborate further on these newer, more esoteric ideas. As Joseph Smith's successor, and certainly one of his most devoted disciples, Brigham Young continued to teach Joseph's Nauvoo theology to the Church. This is the plural of gods and the head god of the gods, etc., On numerous occasions, Brigham Young clearly designated the God of the Old Testament as the Father. In fact, he delighted in citing the theophanies of the Old Testament as evidence of the Father's physical anthropomorphic nature. For instance, take this comment, our former religious traditions has taught us that our Father in Heaven has no tabernacle that his center is everywhere, and his circumference nowhere. Yet we read that God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Before he went, the pestilence and burning coals went went forth at his feet. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. Hast thou an arm like God, or canst thou thunder with a voice like him?" And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face thou shalt not see. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The idea that the Lord our God is not a personage of tabernacle is entirely a mistaken notion. He was once a man. So said Brigham Young. Well, he likewise sometimes combined the names Elohim, Jehovah, or he used them interchangeably as designations for God the Father. We obey the Lord, him who is called Jehovah, the great I am. I am a man of war, Elohim. But if Brigham Young used these names interchangeably, how did he perceive the identities of Jehovah and Elohim in the temple ceremony? This question can be answered by examining his teachings concerning Michael, the third figure in the temple creation story. Significantly, President Young considered Michael, or Adam, to be God the Father, well, not without controversy. This point has been extremely well documented. For example, in one of his less ambiguous statements concerning his belief about the paternity of Jesus, Brigham Young stated, Who did beget him? His father. And his father is our god and the father of our spirits and he is the framer of the body the god and father of our lord jesus christ who is he he is father adam michael the ancient of days Well, the fact that Elohim and Jehovah preside over and direct Michael in the temple ceremony creation account implies that, in this context at least, Brigham Young considered the pair to be patriarchal superiors to God the Father. Like Joseph then, Brigham Young apparently did not see Jesus as being among the temple creation gods. References indicating who exactly Brigham Young did consider this Elohim and Jehovah to be, and their relationship to Michael Adam are sparse and ambiguous. However, the temple scenario itself depicts Elohim as the father of Adam and Eve. This coincides with Brigham's designation of Elohim as the grandfather of mankind. It is also consistent with Joseph Smith's teachings that the creation was directed by a head God superior to our Father in heaven. Since President Young considered the Father to be Adam, and since he consistently designated the God of the Old Testament to be the Father, it is therefore logical to suppose that he believed Adam to be the God of Israel. Indeed, on several occasions he implied that this was the case. For instance, this statement, We begin with the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and of our spirits, who is he? He is that great and wise and glorious being that the children of Israel were afraid of, whose countenance shone so that they could not look upon him, that man who put his hands out before Moses in the cleft of rock until his glory passed by and would not suffer Moses to see his face, but his parts only. I tell you this, as my belief about the personage who is called the Ancient of Days, the Prince, and so on. In General Conference 8 October 1854, Brigham Young specifically applied the title Jehovah to Adam, calling him Yehovah Michael, who carried out the behest of Elohim in the creation of the world. President Young apparently believed that while God the Father was on the earth in the role of Adam. Elohim, the grandfather in heaven, assumed Adam's role as the father of mankind. After his death, Adam returned to his exalted station as God the Father, and as such presided over Israel, designated by the divine name Elohim or Jehovah. He later begot Jesus, his firstborn spirit son, in the flesh. We see a certain flexibility that characterizes the way Brigham Young used the divine names. First, he never referred to Jesus as Jehovah. Second, he referred to God the Father variously as Jehovah. Elohim, Michael, Adam, Ancient of Days, I Am, and other Old Testament epithets. Finally, he also referred to God's superior to the Father as Elohim and Jehovah." So Brigham's application of these titles, Elohim and Jehovah, to several different divine personalities has led to much confusion in understanding his true beliefs, especially with respect to the Adam-God doctrine. Scriptures contradicting the Adam-God doctrine such as the accounts of Adam creation were dismissed by Brigham Young as being baby stories given to men because of their spiritual immaturity and weaknesses. During a discussion of the Adam-God doctrine, At the Salt Lake City School of the Prophets, Brigham Young responded to the question of why the scriptures seemed to put Jesus Christ on an equal footing with the Father, and here is how Brigham explained it. The writers of those scriptures wrote according to their best language and understanding, indicating that Brigham did not feel obligated to accept literally all scriptural accounts of the role of Christ. Now, for sure, while not all general authorities, contemporary with and succeeding Brigham Young agreed with his teachings concerning Michael, many of them did speak of Jehovah as the Father. John Taylor consistently did so in numerous sermons as well as his book, The Mediation and Atonement which he wrote as president of the church, the following hymn written by President Taylor clearly identifies Jehovah as the Father. So this is the third prophet of Mormonism here. As in the heavens they all agree, the records given thereby three, Jehovah, God the Father's one, another his eternal son. The Spirit does with them agree, the witnesses in heaven are three. In some 256 references to the two names, Elohim and Jehovah, well, and the God of the Old Testament in the Journal of Discourses, and these, of course, represent sermons of many of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve in the early days of Mormonism, the title Jehovah is only specifically applied to Jesus just once. This occurred in 1885 when the new doctrine identifying Jesus as Jehovah was just beginning to be developed so that not before 1835 was Jesus known to be the Son of God, called Jehovah. Not surprisingly, some confusion arose among members of the church who had trouble reconciling their reading of the scriptures with Joseph Smith's and Brigham Young's later doctrinal innovations. For example, the Book of Mormon's explicit identification of Jesus as God the Father. This led some members of the church to believe that Jesus was literally the Father of the spirits of mankind. When they combined this with Brigham Young's Adam God doctrine, apparently led other Church members to identify Adam and Christ as the same being. Also, because of the Book of Mormon's equating of Jesus with the God of Israel, some general authorities in the 1880s and 1890s began to speculate that all Old Testament appearances and revelations of God were in reality manifestations of the premortal Jesus. But notice how late this is coming on. This concept eventually led to the identification of Jesus as Jehovah. As early as 1849, Apostle Orson Pratt observed that there were some saints who believed that the Spirit of Christ, before taking a tabernacle, was the Father, exclusively of any other being. They supposed the fleshly tabernacle to be the Son, and the Spirit who came and dwelt in it to be the Father. Hence, they suppose... The father and son were united in one person and that when jesus dwelt on the earth in the flesh they supposed there was no distinct separate person from himself who was called the father this was apparently a book of mormon influenced idea which elder pratt resolved by demonstrating from other scriptures and most of these were biblical that the father and the son were two separate personages Now, as part of his harmonizing technique, Elder Pratt qualified the sense in which Jesus is called the Father in the Book of Mormon. We can do so, but there's a qualification. Interestingly, however, he still referred to God the Father as Jehovah in this same presentation. Well, it was Apostle George Q. Cannon who was one of the first Mormon leaders to assert that Jesus was the being who spoke to Moses in the wilderness and declared, I am that I am. Eleven years after this 1871 declaration, Apostle Franklin D. Richards also identified Jesus Christ as the same being who called abraham from his native country who led israel out of the land of egypt and who made known to them his law amid the thunderings of sinai furthermore president john taylor who throughout his life consistently referred to the father as jehovah listed jehovah among several other titles of the father which might be applied to jesus since Jesus was perfectly obedient to and united with the Father. In August of 1885, Franklin D. Richards made the leap from merely considering Jesus to be Jehovah's representative, and thus worthy, of course, of the latter's title, to the position that Jesus' pre-mortal name was Jehovah. We learn that our Savior was born of a woman, and he was named Jesus the Christ, his name when he was a spiritual being, during the first half of the existence of the earth, before he was made flesh, and blood was Jehovah. He was the spirit being that directed, governed, and gave the law on Mount Sinai, where Moses was permitted to see him in part, Well, this was a new idea, and it's indicated by the fact that just four months prior to this sermon, this very same apostle spoke of Jehovah as the Father. So at these early stages of the development of the Jehovah Christ doctrine, the major consideration seemed to be the identity of the divine being who appeared to Moses and gave him the law for Israel. The Adam-God doctrine, with its concept of a divine being named Jehovah, who presided over God the Father, that is, Michael Adam, in the creation, was not a consideration. This is indicated by the fact that both George Q. Cannon and Franklin D. Richards, major proponents of the Jehovah Christ idea, also believed that Adam was God the Father. Now, in June 1889, George Q. Cannon, then a member of the First Presidency, related his beliefs on the Adam-God doctrine as well as the Jehovah-Christ doctrine to his son, Abraham H. Cannon, and he wrote in his diary, "...he believes that Jesus Christ is Jehovah and that Adam is his father and our God." Jesus, in speaking of Himself as the very Eternal Father, speaks as one of the Godhead. Well, it's unclear whether George Q. Cannon and Franklin D. Richards considered the Jehovah of the Temple ceremony to be Christ. They both, however, positively believed that Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, was Christ, which they continued to teach on several occasions. The identities and roles of the temple creation gods became the focus of a controversy between Bishop Edward Bunker and his counselor Myron Abbott in Bunkerville, Nevada, in 1890. This controversy culminated in 1892 in a stake high council meeting attended by Church President Wilford Woodruff and his counselor George Q. Cannon. Bishop Bunker and his father, Edward Bunker Sr., that the Lecture Before the Veil, as it was then presented in the St. George Temple, contained false doctrine. This lecture dictated by Brigham Young in 1877. Notice the date. This is 30 years later when he put this lecture into place, in the endowment. He clearly implied that Adam was God the Father by explaining that prior to coming to this earth, Adam and Eve had been resurrected and exalted on a former world. In their exalted state, they begot the spirits of all mankind. Under the direction of Elohim and Jehovah, gods of the creation council, Adam then created this earth and brought Eve here with him to fall in order to provide their spiritual offspring with physical tabernacles. Now, the Bunkers maintained that these ideas contradicted the scriptures and Joseph Smith's teachings. Father Bunker also argued that Jesus Christ was Jehovah, the God of heaven, who presided over Michael in the creation and in the Garden of Eden. According to this argument, Michael could not possibly be the father of Christ, since he was subject to Jehovah Christ, whom Bunker apparently also considered to be the father. Notice the interesting doctrinal confusions here. Presidents Woodruff and Cannon defended Brigham Young's Adam God Temple teachings. But they did not expound on them or force them upon the bunkers. Rather, they instructed the bunkers to let these things alone and don't spend time arguing over these mysteries. I mean, wow, here the prophet and his counselors are. If there was any time in need of a direct revelation from the actual God whom they were trying to figure out, Now would have been that time. That's my comment, not Kirtland's. This is astonishing. Instead, they say, oh, quit bothering with it. (laughs) Scriptural contradictions to these ideas were swept aside by President Cannon with the observation that God had and would yet reveal many glorious things men could not prove and search out of the Old Bible. Well, why not there then with the current prophet? when that is exactly when they really needed the revelation. You notice he's speaking in the future as if they have no more revelation. That's fascinating, isn't it? Well, although as a counselor to President Wilford Woodruff, George Q. Cannon often preached that Jesus was Jehovah. President Woodruff was more non-committal on the subject. As late as 1893, he still referred to Jehovah as the Father. Latter-day Saints were thus confronted with a confusing array of different authorities on the question of God's identity and roles. It's astonishing, isn't it? Wow. Apparently, many of these Church members wrote letters to the First Presidency asking them for help in sorting out and understanding these matters. President Wilford would have responded to these inquiries over the pulpit at General Conference in April 1895. All right, at last, we're going to get an answer. But what he simply told the church members is not to worry. Interestingly, he too remained noncommittal, neither condemning the Adam-God doctrine nor endorsing the Jehovah Christ doctrine. Here's what he said. Before I sit down, I want to say a word to the elders of Israel on another subject. Cease troubling yourselves about who God is, who Adam is, who Christ is, who Jehovah is. For heaven's sakes, let these things alone. Why trouble yourselves about these things? God is God, Christ is Christ, the Holy Ghost is the Holy Ghost. That should be enough for you and me to know. I say this because we are troubled every little while with inquiries from elders, anxious to know who God is, who Christ is, and who Adam is. I say to the elders of Israel, stop this. We have had letter after letter from elders abroad wanting to know concerning these things. Adam is the first man. He was placed in the Garden of Eden and is our great progenitor. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Ghost are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That should be sufficient for us to know. And that came from a prophet who supposedly talked with Jesus on a daily basis. And he still doesn't even know who he is. That should positively blow our minds. Well, not surprisingly. President Woodruff's advice did not end the controversy. No, of course not. It's still not over right now today. And we're in 2022. In 1896, Edward Stevenson, one of the seven presidents of 70, had a deep talk with President Lorenzo Snow about the Adam God doctrine. Afterwards, Stevenson wrote in his diary concerning the temple creation gods, certainly Elohim and Jehovah stands before Adam, or else I am very much mistaken. Then, first Elohim, second Jehovah, third Michael Adam, fourth Jesus Christ, our elder brother. In the other world from whence our spirits come, then who is Jehovah? The only begotten son of Elohim on Jehovah's world. See this reference clearly distinguishes between the jehovah who presided over michael at the creation and jesus unfortunately this distinction was not clearly made by general authorities who were publicly promoting the idea that jesus was the jehovah god of the old testament so naturally church members continued to be confused and what is it we're taught today the prophet is here for one reason to clear up all the confusion about everything And these guys never did get unconfused. It's amazing. Well, with the passing of the Mormon practice of plural marriage around the turn of the century, anti-Mormon critics began to attack other doctrinal issues, notably the Adam-God doctrine. And of course, they responded. They basically asserted the Adam-God doctrine need not be justified scripturally, however, That was some general authorities. The first presidency now moved to abate public criticism and internal controversy by citing the scriptures as the final official word on this matter. Notice how different it was then than it is today. Ezra Taft Benson said, The living prophet takes all precedence over everything, scriptures and everything. Back here, the prophets gave way to the scripture shows us constantly we are constantly seeing changes contradictions and confusion when it comes to this mormon doctrine of deity and that's pretty much uh, he does go on uh, for a little while longer Uh, i'm going to go ahead and call it good here well here we go Uh, let me do the wrap up real quick i'm going to skip a page or two i've already passed my time the theological problems concerning the Book of Mormon's identification of Jesus as the Father, the identity of Jehovah the God of Israel, and the roles and the identities of the temple creation gods as connected with the Adam-God doctrine were all finally resolved in a carefully worked out statement written by James E. Talmage. It was submitted to the First Presidency and approved on 29 June 1916. They harmonized the doctrine of the Father and the Son, but it was not the prophet. Notice how different it is here. Joseph Fielding Smith and prophets since him have said, Only the President of the Church has the right to expound doctrine to the Church. Well, here we see someone who was not the prophet, who was expounding doctrine, and the prophets accepted his harmonization. The problem with Talmadge's harmonization, and this is what I will talk about next time as well in the next article by Boyd Kirtland, the problem with James E. Talmadge's harmonization is that it confused the biblical understanding of the Hebrew and the Greek with the divine titles, and it ignored those. It never did straighten anything out. They were so desperate to bring in a harmonization that they just basically ignored the scriptures and tried to figure out a way to make everybody be on the same page. And all they had to do if today's prophets mean anything, is simply ask God. But they apparently didn't. They didn't feel the need to. In fact, they wanted everyone to quit thinking about God and arguing about who God was. That's exactly opposite of what Joseph Smith taught in the King Follett Discourse. You have got to learn how to become God yourselves. So... This is what makes Mormonism so fascinating. This is why we can leave the church, but we cannot leave it alone, because it is so interesting. The twists, the turns, the dialogues, the harmonizations, the blatant, brutal, bad, scriptural contradictions, the arguing and the in- fighting within mormonism all the way up to the absolute upper echelons of authority the prophet himself with the 12 apostles this has never been solved to this day so that's my new byp podcast tonight thank you for joining me i will return in the next podcast with the second article by Boyd Kirtland, Elohim and Jehovah in Mormonism and the Bible that takes a little bit more detailed look. This particular article was more of the historical development. Next time we'll get into the scriptures just a little bit, just to show the serious problematic nature of God in Mormonism.